Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Iran nuclear deal took war off the table. We'll think through what the fighting between Israel and Iran could lead to. New legislation could change the way the U.S. invests in the developing world. We'll find out about the BUILD Act. And I'll talk with a physician who provides gynecological services to low-income women here and around the world. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Let's talk about what's going on with U.S. policy in the Middle East. The Iranian deal and pulling out of the Iranian deal has isolated the U.S. We're going to talk now with Rashid Halidi, Edward Said, professor of Arab studies at Columbia University. He has a piece in The Nation this morning talking about Palestinians and Palestinians have not forgotten. They have not gone away. Thanks for joining us, Rashid. A pleasure. Thank you, Jerome. What do you think the upshot of U.S. policy in the region is here? The United States, you know, is pivoting away from the Iran deal. They're doubling down with Israel. What are the implications of something like that? Well, there are multiple implications. The first is that the United States clearly doesn't care about a settlement between the Palestinians and the Israelis, unless the Israelis manage to crush the Palestinians or the Palestinians choose to capitulate, neither of which things is going to happen. So the United States doesn't really care about that. Deal of the century is not in the works. And Trump has, again, with an eye to his domestic base and to campaign contributions, has basically adopted the entire Israeli position down the line on all the issues uh, between the Palestinians and the Israelis, uh, as far as Jerusalem and by implication as far as a lot of other things. And more seriously in terms of its potential for causing real, real trouble in the short run, um, the Israelis are spoiling for a war. Now, it's not clear which Israelis, it's not clear... You know, if it's just the politicians, whether the army is entirely on board, those are important questions. But the army seems to be moving in the direction of supporting an escalation, at least in Syria. And that Trump has aligned the United States with this. I mean, you listen to Sarah Huckabee Sanders' statement this morning. You know, it's fully supporting the Israeli version of what happened. We don't know that those were Iranian missiles. We don't know who fired first. Uh, The former British ambassador to Syria, a man named Ford, said they were actually Syrian missiles and they were fired at Syrian-occupied Golan Heights, uh, something which was not mentioned, for example, on NPR, that fired at occupied Syrian territory. Um, And the Israelis fired first. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. The point is the White House is talking about Israel's right to sovereign self-defense as soon as it happens. So the United States is completely or appears to be completely aligned with Israel which, as I've said, is spoiling for a war, or at least the Israeli leaders, Netanyahu, Avigdor Lieberman, Naftali Bennett, the ones who talk, Gilad Erdem, the Minister of Strategic Affairs, I mean, as if a war is inevitable. Shouldn't Israel be concerned that in Syria, Iran is planting itself there, has military capabilities, and can do stuff? Well, basically, the Iranians and the Russians have helped this Assad regime pretty much win the Syrian civil war and overcome the intervention from the other side, from the Turks and the Qataris and the Emiratis and the Saudis and the Americans and the Jordanians and the Israelis that were helping the opposition to the regime. So that's happened. 
And it's true, they have considerable military presence in Syria, uh, Iranian proxies more than Iran, though Iran also has its own presence. Most of these proxies are militias on the ground that are there to help the Assad regime maintain control over territory. They don't threaten Israel in any way, manner, or form. The thing that concerns Israel is Iran's own direct presence there, um, which has to do with mainly missile capabilities, drones secondarily. And those are there from the Israeli perspective. That's a threat. It's a threat because Israel wants to be the only one that deters, because Israel wants to be the only one that can carry out attacks. The idea that another country can deter Israel is unacceptable. Israeli strategic doctrine is we have absolute superiority and you cannot match us. And if you match us, that's a threat. So that's the way the Israelis see it. That's the way they see Hezbollah's quite extensive arsenal in Lebanon of missiles. That's from the Israeli perspective. From the Iranian perspective, this is a deterrent. They know the Israelis want to attack them. They know the Israelis want to take out whatever nuclear and missile and other capabilities they may have, or at least nuclear capacities that might lead to the construction of a weapon at a later stage, and their long-range missile development capacities. These are things that the Iranians know Israel, and it now seems increasingly the United States, might be willing to strike at. And so what the Iranians want to do is to build up a deterrent capability. They've done that in part through Hezbollah in Lebanon. And they seem to have been trying to do that as well themselves and through proxies in Syria. This is where the Iran nuclear deal fits in. The Iran nuclear deal was, in a way, keeping a lid on all that? Exactly. And what the president has done, what Trump has done, is to knock the lid off, which is what Netanyahu has been campaigning for, for, you know, ever since the deal was being negotiated. I mean, in before the U.S. Congress, he campaigned against the president of the United States and his foreign policy to the the rabid applause of Democrats and Republicans alike, standing ovation after standing ovation. And what this does is to put us really directly behind Israel and directly behind the Netanyahu government. Um, and again, we have two leaders who are playing foreign policy ma- largely for uh, domestic reasons. I mean, I, b- I believe that Netanyahu and the Israelis have ginned themselves up into being convinced that there is a threat, which means their doctrine of absolute superiority and only we can strike and only we can deter is being challenged by this Iranian attempt to build up a capability in Syria. They believe that, but at the same time, they are now clearly spoiling for a fight. The question is, will this be restricted to Syria? Will it spread to Lebanon? Is it meant to spread further into a general war involving Iran? And those are all questions that you have to ask in Tel Aviv, where the defense ministry is, and in Washington. But will the, our military accept the, to me, completely insane idea of the United States allowing Israel to involve it in a war directly with Iran? And, and those are really big questions. I mean, I've talked to people who know about military affairs from our side, from the American side, and they've said a war, an American war with Iran, however you war game it, however you play it, is going to be a catastrophe. It's going to make Iraq and Afghanistan look like picnics. And so this is, to me, very worrying. <laughs> we don't know what the Israelis' endgame is. How far do they want to take this escalation? Can it be restricted to Syria? Will it expand to Lebanon? If so, will that eventually mean we're going to be, we, the United States, be dragged by the Israelis into a war with Iran itself? What's that going to mean for the Gulf? I mean, the Saudis are aligned with the Israelis, too. Does that mean that the oil installations on both sides are going to be targeted? What's it going to do to the world economy? I mean, there's a lot of very big questions here. None of this necessarily is going to happen, but there are a lot of very big questions here which are pretty serious. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Rashid Halidi of Columbia University. We're talking about the situation broadly in the Middle East. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll discuss a new bill in Congress which would make it easier for American business to invest in developing countries. Does it reduce the need for U.S. foreign assistance? We're going to find out in 15 minutes. Okay, so I wanted to fold in uh, the Saudis and the Europeans here to this equation. Obviously, the Europeans have looked pretty impotent and don't seem to have any influence on the U.S., but if they really put their shoulder to it and stick to the Iran nuclear deal with Russia and China, can they counterbalance the momentum you're talking about is all about? And Obviously, the Saudis are out there encouraging the U.S. and Israel and seem to want to have some kind of knockback on Iran. There are players out there that could blunt or accelerate this. Yeah. Well, the Europeans could do a lot if they wanted to and could coordinate. They could come out and say that they will not allow the United States sanctions to affect their commercial relations with Iran. The whole point of this deal and this is one of the things that Netanyahu hates about it, is that not only would it have delayed the Iranians being able to produce nuclear weapons and continue the development of their nuclear program, it would have also allowed for massive investment in Iran and a reintegration of Iran into the world economy. That's what the deal that was cut entailed. It wasn't just about stopping Iran's nuclear program. It was also about ending the sanctions. What Trump has done in reimposing sanctions, and he says he's going to ratchet them up, is to attempt to once again destroy the Iranian economy and basically achieve regime change. He's trying to overthrow the regime in, in Tehran. And that's what the people around him, closest to him, the Boltons and the Pompeos, have been arguing for for years and years and years. I mean, Bolton is annually featured at the Mujahideen al-Khalq uh, meetings where he, he, you know, he calls for regime change. That's what he believes. Uh, the Europeans saying we are going to respect the terms of the deal is not what's important. What's important is are the Europeans going to allow their companies to violate U.S. sanctions and sell say, Airbuses, or sell, say, oil equipment, or sell commercial goods to Iran. American banks are not going to allow you to do that with dollars. The Treasury Department's going to come down on people. The, the Justice Department's going to come down on companies that deal and violate U.S. sanctions. Will the Europeans stand up to the United States and tell them, instead of the sort of milk toast, namby-pamby porridge that Macron and, and May and Merkel have issued, Say, we think what you're doing is completely illegitimate. We are going to write laws to insulate our banking system from your banking system, and we're going to go ahead and normalize economic relations with Iran because they're keeping to the terms of the deal. So as far as we're concerned, we're going to keep to the terms of the deal. Sanction them if you want. We won't. I don't think the Europeans have the courage to do that, frankly. I mean, it requires rewriting a bunch of laws. It requires going up against the U.S. Justice Department, the U.S. Treasury, Trump. Are they going to take Trump on? I don't think so. I hope they do. What the United States has done is completely legitimate. It's a violation of an international accord. There was a deal there. The Iranians are keeping to the deal. The Israelis say the Iranians are keeping to the deal. Israeli military and the Israeli intelligence community and the American military and the American intelligence community all say the, Israeli, the Iranians have kept their side of the deal. Good deal, bad deal, another issue. And the other part of the deal was economic. So that's the answer to the first part of your question. Uh, the other thing that Europeans could do is to call out the Israelis on this. You guys are trying to start a Middle East war, whether it's a big one in, just in Syria or a, a smaller one, and you are provoking the Iranians. You want to get the Iranians out of Syria? Get into a negotiation. Do what the Russians and the Turks and the Iranians are trying to do as far as mediating between the Syrian opposition and the Syrian regime in Astana and Kazakhstan. 
there are ways to deal with the Iranian military presence in Syria that do not involve escalating steps that could lead us to World War III. But that's not necessarily where the Israelis are taking us, but the Europeans should be saying something about that. Uh, say, you have been provoking the Iranians in Syria in order to have the justification for a bigger war, and we are against that, and we'll impose sanctions on you or something like that. I mean, that wouldn't stop the Israelis as long as they think Trump is behind them. But it would certainly put the whole thing in a different perspective because our press isn't talking about half of this stuff either. Our press is not quite in the position of selling a lying, deceitful war the way it was in 2003, but we're not that far from it. You know, the Israelis have some legitimate concerns, but does that really justify what might be escalatory steps towards a regional war? I think that's a question at least should be asked. And the last thing about the Saudis is they're doing something very, very dangerous. I mean, I think you have a leader in Saudi Arabia or leaders in Saudi Arabia who don't have the collective caution and collective experience that previous generations of Saudi leadership did. Now, they were old. They were slow. They weren't always in agreement. Uh, You didn't always like the decisions they made, but they were always quite cautious And they always assumed that certain kinds of things would come back and harm the kingdom and the dynasty. Uh, This generation, the king and his son, have completely appropriated all the levers of power in the kingdom. The military, the intelligence services, the interior ministry, the the national guard, so-called. Taking these segments of the armed forces and intelligence services away from key branches of the royal family and putting them entirely under the king, Salman, and Muhammad, his son. And they're taking decisions on their own, just the king and his son, or basically his son. And he's not a man of enormous experience or knowledge of the world. He has no military background whatsoever. He has no understanding or knowledge of international relations. He is very, very headstrong. He wants to move fast. He's not cautious at all. And I'm not quite sure to what extent they understand that you can't necessarily limit, say, some kind of Israeli war that will limit supposedly Iranian influence in Syria. I mean, what if things escalate? What is that going to do to the situation in the kingdom? What is that going to do to the Gulf, the oil? I mean, prices of oil are already shot through the roof. There's, I think we're at a four-year high, three-year high as of yesterday or this morning. So I have difficulty understanding what the Saudis really think they're doing or what the king and his son really think they're doing because to say we want to limit Iranian influence is a perfectly reasonable thing to say, whether you agree with them or not. But to back the Israelis to this extent, and they've gone around in European capitals telling them, we support a war. We support a war. Uh, Now, whether they mean, you know, limited war inside Syria, which would just limit Iranian influence there, if that's possible, I don't know. But unfortunately, what Trump has now done is to isolate the United States from almost every one of its allies, whether it's over Korea, where the, the South Koreans and the, the Japanese and the Chinese all are wondering what in God's name is going to come next, or whether it's in the Middle East, where the Europeans and many other Arab, Arab and other regional countries have absolutely no idea what the United States and Israel and Saudi Arabia are up to. I'm talking with Rashid Holiday from Columbia University. We're talking about the situation broadly in the Middle East. Coming up, we'll discuss a new bill in Congress, which would make it easier for American business to invest in developing countries. Um, I wanted to just talk for a second, Rashid, about the um, situation that Palestinians are facing these days. You've got a piece in The Nation magazine today. Uh, the Palestinians have not forgotten. They have not gone away. It would seem like the Palestinian national cause is, you know, really in the backseat to everything these days and has been since Syria blew up. 
the leadership amongst Palestinians looks really bad. Uh, how do you see this thing? Well, there is no question that the Palestinian cause, from one Palestinian perspective, looks as if it's in quite a grim situation. You have some of the most abysmal leadership the Palestinians have had, and that's saying something because they've had some really bad leaders and some very poor decisions have been made. But I think we've reached rock bottom. Perhaps, heaven forbid, we could go lower, but we've reached rock bottom. I mean, that absolutely unspeakable um, piece of rhetoric that uh, Abu Mazen delivered at the opening of the Palestinian National Council was the worst thing any Palestinian leader has ever said since the Mufti. I mean, really, seriously, it was unforgivable. There's no reason that this man has shown that he has any qualification to lead anything, to lead a, you know, a parade of Boy Scouts, let alone a people in the predicament that the Palestinians And just to, give, just to um, be clear about what he said, he got up and said the Jews were to blame for the Holocaust for a bunch of banking right. things and uh, you know, the straight-up I mean, anti-Semitic stuff. Exactly. That is he repeated vintage. a bunch of anti-Semitic slurs, and he said some foolish and ahistorical and wrong things about the Holocaust. He said unforgivably offensive things, unforgivably offensive. And the Israelis, of course, happily refused to accept his apology when he tried to grovel and, and take it all back. When finally people got to him and said, you've got to be out of your mind to have said things that are so stupid and so counterproductive and so harmful to the cause that you purport to represent. And it's not just Abu Mazen and his people in Ramallah. It's also Hamas in Gaza. Neither has any strategic vision. Neither has a strategy for the Palestinians. And both are so deeply attached to their privileges and to the fact that these lot control Gaza and this lot that they're unwilling to compromise. I mean, I've listened to Egyptians talking about their attempt to bring about a compromise. Both sides have been pig-headed and stubborn and essentially more eager to retain their privileges and to fight for narrow partisan advantage than they are to try and uh, achieve a reconciliation that would serve the Palestinian national interest. Um, so we have two hopeless, bankrupt, uh, visionless groups that purport to lead the Palestinians and that are not very popular. I think Hamas would probably lose a free election in Gaza. And I think Abu Mazen is extremely unpopular. He's less than 30% support among the Palestinians. So he wouldn't win anything ever under any circumstances. He doesn't represent anybody. He was elected to a four-year term that ended nine years ago. He doesn't actually represent anybody. He's sitting there in an office, but I mean, his term ended nine years ago. Um, but from another Palestinian perspective, the effervescence in Palestinian civil society, which was witnessed in these unarmed popular mass demonstrations, are a phenomenon that's repeated itself again and again in Palestinian history. It happened in the great general strike of 1936. It happened in the first intifada starting in December 1987, and it's happening again. It's visible in the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which is a civil society-led movement. Um, the Israelis talk about it in completely lurid, disgustingly distorted terms, as if it's anti-Semitic, as if it's intended to destroy the state of Israel. You know, the Palestinians are told, don't use violence, so they use nonviolence, and then there's suddenly a bunch of anti-Semites who are out to destroy the state of Israel. BDS and mass initiatives like these are really quite encouraging signs. The Palestinian civil society is taking up the slack where the bankrupt, corrupt, discredited, disreputable, revolting leaderships um, have failed, whether in Ramallah or, or in Gaza. And that's one of the things I try and point to in the piece that are the little very short piece I wrote in The Nation. Rashid Halidi is Edward Said, professor of Arab studies at Columbia University. His piece in The Nation is The Palestinians Have Not Forgotten. They Have Not Gone Away. He's also author, most recently, of Brokers of Deceit, How the U.S. Has Undermined Peace in the Middle East. Rashid, good talking with you. 
Good talking to you, Jerome. Thank you. Coming up after the break, an effort to increase U.S. investment in the developing world. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's new legislation that aims to increase federal financing and unleash U.S. private sector investment in the developing world. The Better Utilization of Investments Leading to Development Act, or BUILD Act, using its much more simple acronym, was introduced in Congress earlier this year. The One Campaign is a supporter of the BUILD Act and hopes to see the bill passed. With me is Kyle Deming. He's a Chicago-area business owner. He volunteers with the One Campaign, has been lobbying members of Congress about the BUILD Act. Great to meet you, Kyle. Thanks so much for having me. On on the line with us is Jacqueline Quinones. She is Senior Director of U.S. Government Relations with the One Campaign. Thanks for joining us, Jackie. Thank you for having me. Um, Could you explain what this legislation does? Because it's going to create something something like a new development finance corporation in the U.S. if it passes, and it would uh, kind of bring together different functions from different places in the U.S. government now. What, What would happen here? Um, Yes. So basically to describe what this bill does is it takes some existing U.S. institutions and it combines them into this new development finance corporation. And what that corporation will do is essentially provide risk insurance, loan guarantees, and other types of backing to sort of reduce the risk that businesses feel that they'll be exposed to if they go into places that are developing, that do have risks inherent in them. You know, it's not like going and starting a business in Switzerland. You know, this is talking about Ghana or Malawi or another place like that where there are more uncertainties in the market and where a traditional bank might not necessarily provide a loan to a business looking to get engaged in a country like that. So this new development finance corporation would basically be stood up and try to help incentivize U.S. companies uh, to do business in developing countries, which we feel is incredibly important in the long-term path of getting out of extreme poverty for a lot of these countries around the world. What's wrong with the way we're doing it now? We do some of the things you were listing, uh, the, the, the services about financing and insurance, and that, that there's, it comes from different places now. What would be better about this? There are a couple of things that I think that we think would be better about this. The first is the existing institution. Um, it's called OPEC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. It was created in 1971, so and it hasn't been updated since then. So it's a pretty outdated federal agency, and it's also coming up against its limit of the total amount of loans and financing that it can give. So it's running out of runway, essentially, of what it can do around the world. Um, and it also has sort of more limited authorities that are scattered across the government. Um, this new bill will update its authorities. It will increase its lending limit, and it will also, we think, put a stronger development eye towards these investments. So it will hopefully pull together our traditional U.S. development agency, the U.S. 
Agency for International Development, USAID, and it will bring them closer together so that hopefully our foreign service officers who work in development overseas will have an even stronger role in guiding some of these finance decisions that are being made from OPIC, which is mostly bankers who don't necessarily know these countries on the ground. So we feel like it will hit those two things really well, both improving the way businesses engage, improving what they can do, but also giving them an even stronger development eye towards where they're going and how they're investing. Uh, Kyle Deming, where is the bill right now? It, it was uh, uh, put in in February, I understand. Yeah, that's right. It was recently um, voice voted out of committee, um, which is great. And we want to thank uh, Robin Kelly and Brad Schneider uh, as part of the Illinois delegation that uh, that did approve it out of committee. Uh, so now it's a matter of getting it to a full vote. Uh, and so obviously one of the things that we want to do as an advocacy organization is to encourage that process along. And we would like to see this bill up for vote as soon as possible. Uh, why did you get involved with this and decide that this was a good thing to lobby on? Uh, with, the, with the one campaign in general or this particular bill? Uh, this particular bill. Well, this particular bill speaks to me because I am a small business owner um, here in the Chicago area. And I know what sort of advantages I have uh, in living in such a business-friendly climate uh, here in the United States. Um, and I know that the, the key to ending uh, poverty is a good job. And so uh, a lot of people around the world don't have the same opportunities that I've had um, in living in such a business-friendly climate. So I would like to see those kind of opportunities open up uh, for people in developing nations uh, where they could really use that help. Now, uh, the one campaign has worked previously, Jackie, with uh, an electrical bill that uh, got, went through Congress. Yes, we did. We actually, uh, several years ago, worked on a bill called Electrify Africa, which was aimed at improving access to electricity across the continent. Um, you know, I actually used to work in the House of Representatives, and we would look at barriers to development and economic growth, and we actually found that one of the chief barriers was access to electricity. People can't run businesses if they're using very expensive generators all of the time. And so, you know, while I was on the Hill and after I left, we worked on this bill that would really focus on investing in power grids, power provision, and power utilities and how they provide access. And funnily enough, that bill got passed. We were really excited about it. And one of the key implementers of Electrify Africa is OPIC. Um, you know, they provide financing to companies that really have a lot of innovative ideas, whether it's on-grid or off-grid, natural gas, wind turbines, and helps them get involved on the continent and provide access in countries that otherwise don't have this type of infrastructure. So it dovetails really nicely, this new bill, um, with the Electrify Africa bill that we worked on several years ago. So the kind of things you think would be invested in are maybe small businesses, but maybe infrastructure projects. Is that uh, also a, a target here? Yeah, the range of things that can get investment with this new development finance corporation is quite broad at the moment. So it could go all the way from microfinancing to very small, you know, entrepreneurs on the continent to medium-sized enterprises to large-scale enterprises who are, you know, again, building wind turbines and large infrastructure and projects like that. So the new authorities that this bill will give, I think, will provide the Development Finance Corporation with such a broad scope that it can engage from the very small to the very large. You know, in a country like Ethiopia or Kenya, you're looking at projects that could be very large to provide for these very large economies and large populations. But then you also have countries like Malawi and Burundi who have very small populations with low per capita income, and they're going to need access to things like microfinance in order to start businesses. So we like the broad scope that this 
does DFC would be able to support. I'm talking with Jackie Quinones, Director of U.S. Government Relations for the One Campaign and business owner Kyle Deming, and we're discussing uh, their the BUILD Act, which was introduced in Congress earlier this year. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll have our global activism segment, and we'll talk about why cervical cancer rates are just as bad for American women as for the global poor. Um, I wanted to ask about some of the criticism of the BUILD Act. I was reading an article in um, The Hill and it said that the legislation sounds promising, but uh, it fails to adequately address rule of law conditions that make for healthy investment and sustainable development climate. And it talked about um, good governance and governance wasn't among the criteria to be used in the BUILD Act. And this was written by the uh, head of the American Bar Association. Um, it, and she mentioned also the Millennium uh, Challenge uh, way of doing things where you kind of grade people on how well they're going to be able to invest money. It, what about some of those criticisms, Jackie? Yeah, um, I think this is a really good question. It's one that we've gotten a couple of times. Um, so a couple of pieces to the answer. The first is, I think when we think about the role of the Development Finance Corporation, um, it's not investing in the government in the same way that the Millennium Challenge Corporation does. For example, it's working directly with private businesses. So to try to change government behavior through loans to private businesses is not an incredibly effective way to try and change government behavior. It's actually the reason why one of the other things that the One Campaign works on is traditional development assistance, which is very much targeted at good governance, transparency, anti-corruption, those types of programs, because we absolutely recognize that they're critical for long-term development to work. Um, but there are different tools for different goals. So we feel like focusing on traditional development for those types of anti-corruption activities is important, and we do. Um, but it isn't exactly – we don't think that the Development Finance Corporation is the best tool for accomplishing that. That said, the other thing I would say on this is that we have gone through a very rigorous process of working with members on the Hill in the House and the Senate who have raised concerns about transparency, making sure that all of the progressive policies that are currently in place with OPEC will continue to exist under the new Development Finance Corporation. Uh, the vote that just occurred yesterday, which Kyle referenced, actually included several amendments to try and address some of those concerns and making sure that this new institution really will have a strong eye towards development, good development, and everybody voted yes on that bill. So we feel much better about how this process is moving forward and addressing people's concerns. So hopefully the author of that bill will look at these new amendments and look at these changes and feel like there have been sufficient improvements that they can support it. Um, Kyle, what have you learned in the process of doing all this? I imagine there are a lot of different lessons you can take out of this. Uh, and do you look at uh, traditional aid differently and uh, investment differently now? Yeah, I do. I mean, one of the biggest things I've learned is how active and involved we can all be in the process. So I used to be a little more cynical about our ability to you know, try to influence policy or to speak with you know, our elected uh, representatives. But uh, being involved in the one campaign, I've really seen that you can make a difference by meeting with your congressperson, by writing letters, by making phone calls, by getting other people engaged on issues you care about. Um, so that's been uh, that's been something great that I've learned. Um, what's the next step for this uh, legislation, Jackie? I mean, you're waiting for the the full Congress to vote on it, but it sounds like there's bipartisan support for this. 
Uh, yeah, it's actually pretty incredible. Um, no matter when you're talking about, it can be incredibly difficult to get bipartisan support for a bill in the House and the Senate. Um, and in this case, we have also managed to get support from the administration, um, President Trump's administration. So in the House, we actually have members from the Progressive Caucus and the Freedom Caucus who support this bill. And how often can you say that about a piece of legislation? Um, and so we're looking at getting this bill moved to the full floor for a House vote. Um, not sure yet on the timing since we just got that vote out of committee. We're going to continue working with members of Congress to get co-sponsors. We'll work with the leadership in the House to see what kind of timing we can get on a vote there. And then on the Senate side, we're still waiting for them to vote that out of committee and then move it forward on their side of on their side of the Hill. So once we move through those steps, we'll see how we can reconcile them and get it sent to the president for signature. But we are incredibly hopeful and we've really been working well with members of both parties in the administration and on the Hill to maintain a really robust coalition of support. And it's been incredibly encouraging and we're very hopeful for the path forward. Jackie Quinones is Senior Director of U.S. Government Relations with the One Campaign. Kyle Deming is a Chicago area business owner who volunteers with the One Campaign and is lobbying community members in Congress for the BUILD Act. And we'll keep our eye on the legislation. Thanks for joining us, Kyle and Jackie. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with a physician who provides gynecological services to low-income women here and around the world. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism series where we feature people who make the world a better place. Getting health care to low-income women who need it should always be a priority. Dr. Nicole Williams is a gynecological surgeon and a founder of the Gynecological Institute of Chicago, and she has been doing that here and abroad. Great to meet you. Good to meet you too, Jerome. Uh, you have a history of service around the world providing gynecological services. It sounds like this is something you got into uh, right at when you were getting out of medical school and just kept doing it. You know, it actually started back when I was a kid. My parents, I guess, I, they were global citizens before it was fashionable to be a global citizen. So I took my first trip overseas very young. I went to what was still then the Soviet Union. Wow. And ever since then, my love of travel and culture has just transmitted itself to my chosen career medicine. And I said, hey, why can't I do both things, both travel and experience the cultures, be with the people and actually do something good at the same time? So how many countries have you gone to as a physician here? And you're using all your fingers. Let at this me point. count on my fingers. <laughs> so we have been to Ghana, Rwanda, Philippines, Thailand, um, did I already said Ghana, Dominican <laughs> Republic, Haiti, and Mexico. So describe the kind of things you've been doing there. Well, primarily, I was working with a previous group, and 
called Medical Ministry International, and we did primarily surgical interventions because there are a lot of times when you're in these countries, you're not, you don't have access to the best surgeons, of course, and you're not able to really get the service that you need. Or if you can, you're in line. And I actually did a surgery on a lady when we were in Ghana where she was supposed to have a surgery to remove fibroid tumors, which can cause a lot of problems and infertility. Infertility is very important in that culture. And another person came in and was able to pay more money, and she was ready to go for surgery, had everything set. They said, oh, you can't, you have to go home. And it was six months later, we came in and we were able to do our surgery. Uh, so now you're working with an organization, Remote Area Medical? Yes. Uh, the thing I like about Remote Area Medical is that we can also do charity here at home. You know, charity begins right here. And yes, I love to do the travel, but now I can actually do shorter trips and more frequent trips. So I've actually been to Tennessee. And what'd you do there? We did uh, what's called the see and treat model. So we know that about 12,000 women are diagnosed with cervical cancer in the United States. And about 4,000 of those women die. And that's really unacceptable in a first world country. All you need is access to a pap smear. So that's what we did. Something very, very simple, which is what I did in Haiti the last time I was there. You see something. If you see anything that looks bad, in fact, I took my little remote little machine that we can take. We can travel with it. And we actually treated any precancerous tumors or lesions or anything that we saw right then at the time. So you're able to um, take, a, take a machine and treat the people right there and yeah, just right after their pap smear? Exactly. No, we do it at the same time. We look and we see. We see anything that looks strange. It works incredibly well, and it keeps those ladies from getting cancer. So we're actually curing cancer before it even happens. So I know that it's Women's Health Week in this area and um, on, from the May 13th to May 19th, and you're going to offer 100 free pap smears here to uninsured people. I am, and I was thinking there's no reason why I can't take my love of service and my job that I do every day and do them at the same time. So what we're doing is there is a program in the state of Illinois called the Illinois Breast and Cervical Cancer Prevention Program. And I want to shine a light on that program. I actually used to work in it when I was working at a federally qualified health center and have those ladies who are coming to see me. I have a lab who I'm working with, and they've actually agreed to do all the testing for free. I'm going to see the patients for free. And at that time, when they come to see me, we're going to get them enrolled in that program. So this is not going to be a one-off. We're going to get them in the program so they can continue to get the necessary screening. So the Illinois Breast and uh, Cervical Cancer Program, yes. is this is a state-run program that does this? It's a statewide program. There is a center almost in every section, and there's plenty of centers here in, around the city of Chicago. In fact, like I said, I used to work at one. And so I'm going to get as many of those ladies who I can see, get them all in there, and, you know, get them going. How many uninsured people need to get pap smears? So if we're talking about half of the population is female, then that's half of the uninsured women. And the problem is this. If you get a pap smear, you are not going to get cervical cancer. The last time I diagnosed a cervical cancer was on a lady who was uninsured for many years. She was uninsured about 10 years, and she came to me bleeding. And when I looked, I knew I didn't, you know, you just, you gasp a little bit when you, so, you see that there's a patient and you know that there's something bad. And it was just because, and we're, this is in the city of Chicago, and that was completely unacceptable. It shouldn't have happened. 
So uh, the number of women with uh, a lack of insurance is like uh, is like twenty twenty percent maybe, or people about, who don't yeah. get, people who don't get Pap smears. Period. Is, yeah, is just like about 20, 25 percent. Yeah, up to that much. Yeah. Um, so there would seem to be no, you know, how how can you get people to all you know all women to get Pap smears? I guess. Well, we got to get the word out. And we have to get women to overcome the fear. I have a lot of my patients like, oh, I don't want to do this. Oh, it's just terrible. And I go, you know, cancer is worse. Let's get it done. The guidelines have changed now. So it's not every year anymore. As long as we can get you screened every three to five years, then we know that we're going to keep you safe. How do the rates in the United States compare to the rates in the developing world? You mentioned that it, it, it should, shouldn't happen at all in the United States, yet 4,000 mm-hmm. women are dying from it. Everywhere. Exactly. So in many other developing countries, this is one of the leading causes of cancer death. So the last time cervical cancer was the leading cause of cancer death in the U.S., it was 1947. Now we're talking 2018 and cervical cancer in many of the developing countries, especially where I've been, and I'm actually going to be going to Guyana and Haiti, Ghana and Rwanda, a lot of those places, it's one of the number one cancer killers because they don't have that type of screening. How do other countries do who have national health insurance? Is it like zero? Zero deaths? Is that... That would be great, but... The problem is about exposure, like we just talked about, just getting people to physically come in. What I'd really like to see is a more non-invasive type of test, which would really kind of get more women to agree to the type of testing. So once we do have a little bit more of a standardized way, like we're talking about Great Britain, Canada, I'm sure their rates are much lower than ours. And it, women don't want to come in because it's painful. It, uh, it's not great. I know. That's the hard part. And always, when I'm finished talking with my patients, we do our exam, the first thing they always say is, oh, that wasn't that bad. And I go, see? Now tell your friends. I'm talking with Dr. Nicole Williams. She's a gynecological surgeon. She's founder of the Gynecological Institute of Chicago, and she's getting gynecological services to people who need it here and around the world. And for Women's Health Week, she is uh, offering 100 pap smears for new and uninsured patients. Uh, how How do people go about getting this if they want it? All they have to do is call my office, and that phone number is 312-929-9191. The Gynecological Institute of Chicago, that's where it's at. Yes, it's a gynecology institute. I'm a small business owner and a staunch women's health advocate and really want to see what we can do and really just help the community to the best of our ability. Um, What do you think needs doing in women's health? Uh, If you're a a staunch advocate, it seems like there's a lot where women don't get the kind of health care, the same health care that even men get. You know, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Because contraception and family planning is starting to be under attack. We're talking about just what happened recently with some legislation that was passed that um, kind of put the kibosh on certain procedures that women do need at at some points in their lives. So what we do know is this. When a woman is educated, she's able to plan her families better. When she can plan her family, she's going to have fewer children. She can put more resources 
into those children and then actually end up with a healthier, happier family that's going to actually do better in life. And so will she because she's not burdened with too many pregnancies and the risks that are associated with bleeding, hemorrhage, and or premature death if you have too many children and you can bleed out. So what kind of things are uh, under attack here? So um, it was Ohio or... Yeah, there was a piece of legislation that was recently passed, hopefully it will be repealed, that stopped procedures, abortions, from being performed after six weeks. And as a gynecologist, and as many women know, you don't know you're pregnant sometimes at six weeks. And if that is an unwanted pregnancy and an undesired pregnancy, then you have no recourse in that state at this point right now. So then you end up seeking care that may not be the best care. And we're in the United States of America. This should be completely unacceptable because what we, like we said, we already know that when women are able to plan their families, they do better. The children do better. The women do better. In most uh, countries in the developed world, it seems to be they, they take a different tact on this. They, they put this in with healthcare in general they don't they don't uh, it's not a separate thing that's all in, all involved in religion and different things exactly it should never be a separate thing this is about public health because women's health is global health and there should be no separation for something that is so vital to a society to the success of a society than just good old fashioned family planning and this is something the Trump administration has ramped up in its global uh, global fi- global financing too. It it will not yes. give money to anyone who is uh, involved in this kind of family bingo. Planning. And so when I travel, I have actually ended up performing. When we were in the Dominican Republic, I had women who had so many children. That's quite a religious country as well. And we ended up doing ovarian cystectomies, I'll put that in air quotes, because the husband had to get permission. But what we were actually doing is doing tubal occlusion, tubal ligation, so the woman wouldn't have a fifth or a sixth or a seventh pregnancy. And then she's able to raise those children. So yes, and on top of that, yes, the Trump administration is keeping monies from many of the NGOs who are advocating something so plain, so simple, and so vital. Uh, Do you think there's enough uproar about this? Of course not. (laughs) There is not enough uproar about this because it's a women's health issue, air quotes again, because when it's a woman problem, it seems as if it becomes something that's somehow put to the side, that it's not as important. But what we don't, what we still know is that when women are healthy, the world is healthy. Um. Are you optimistic about the direction things are going with women's health? I mean, there seem to be so many answers right in front of us. The answers are in front of us. All we have to do is just open our eyes and look and just every day continue the fight. So just sitting here with you right now, I'm continuing that fight. Talking with my colleagues at conferences, we're continuing the fight. So every day it's an uphill battle, but guess what? We just keep rolling. (laughs) Um, Are are you optimistic about your whole uh, field here in gynecological services? It seems like there's probably been a revolution in it since the time you got out of medical school. Ah, the revolution is that there are so many more women entering the field, which is absolutely phenomenal. 
But, you know, something that's odd about that is that the pay has actually decreased. So if you look at other fields, when women enter the field, like, for example, education, when men used to be the primary teachers, the pay was a certain rate. When women started entering those fields, it went down a little bit. So that's another fight that we as female physicians are going to have to do. But overall, I have to say I am incredibly optimistic of what we're doing because every day I get up in the morning, I go to work, I see my patients, and I think we're doing all right. So if people want to get uh, people who are uninsured and they want a free pap smear, they can call the Gynecological Institute of Chicago. Yes. So our number again is 312-929-9191. And of course, we're also seeing regular patients as well. And we'd love for our uninsured patients to become our patients too. Dr. Nicole Williams is a gynecological surgeon, founder of the Gynecological Institute of Chicago. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about women's health. It was absolutely my pleasure, Jerome. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to be on the Magnificent Mile. We'll be at the Fourth Presbyterian Church at noon for Chicago Fair Trade Day. We'll have a really great time out there with people who want to see ethical commerce in our community. Hope you can come out out and enjoy the uh, Fair Trade Day along Michigan Avenue tomorrow. We'll be at the Fourth Presbyterian Church at noon. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gali Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.